Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we are recording from the Mind Poppers Psychotherapy Offices. So please take a seat, lie down on the couch, because today we are going to be delving into your mind. Because on Mind Poppers, you know, we talk a lot about the paranormal. We talk about the occult, the bizarre, the strange, you know. But oftentimes, fact is stranger than fiction. And perhaps there may be nothing more terrifying than taking an inward look looking into the mirror and seeing for the first time clearly exactly what is looking back at you. Because as we know, the human mind is beyond complex. The human mind contains an entire universe full of past traumas and memories and ego and desire that we really do not understand. You know, there's a lot of things about ourselves that we may look at and and not even question. But the scary part is following those train tracks back in our mind and finding out what makes us us. Why do we act the way we act? You know, where do our personalities come from? You know, sure, we could say that everyone's born with a different personality. But a lot of that occurs of who we are is made up from past experiences, past trauma, and a lot of it exists in the subconscious. Now, one of the leading founders, maybe the the father of psychoanalytical therapy is, of course, Sigmund Freud. Now, Sigmund Freud was born in the the, the mid-1800s. He was born in Austria and he eventually he left Austria because, you know, out of fear of persecution from the Nazis. But he has come up with a lot of, I mean, bizarre theories, especially in regards towards sexuality um, that I want to get into in a minute. But first, I want to give you a little bit of a a backstory on Sigmund Freud. And we won't go too far back. But in particular, he had an interesting relationship with his daughter. Now, a lot of you have heard the name Sigmund Freud. You know, how couldn't you? It's a, a massive, massive part of the culture. Sigmund Freud, like I said, was basically the the founding father of psychoanalytical therapy. You know, he he really established how we look at the mind today. And he did some some great work into understanding the, the subconscious, you know, because before Sigmund Freud, there wasn't really even a term for the subconscious. But like I said, he had a difficult relationship with his daughter. And you have to remember, you know, mid 1800s to the late or to early 1900s you know he was going to be off on a few things and off he was you know especially Sigmund Freud's view towards homosexuality Sigmund Freud favored homosexuality in particular in males because he thought that it while it could be um 
a neurotic tendency, it wasn't particularly harmful. And he actually, I think it was in 1935, which is obviously very early in terms of talking about homosexuality and what have you. But in 1935, um, Freud penned an open letter um, in regards to um, homosexuality, especially in males. And he was actually one of the first people, and again, coming from Sigmund Freud, who was, you know, so hot back then, um, said that homosexuality should actually be removed, at least for men, um, removed as, um, from the, you know, removing it, so basically from the, say, the psychology, like the diagnostic of mental illness, um, it should be removed as a mental illness, that like homosexuality shouldn't be considered a mental illness, at least in men. But he did think, however, that lesbianism was considered a gateway to mental illness. And it was interesting because you'd see, oh my Lord, what was that? You will see um, in terms of how this, this kind of complicated his relationship with his daughter. And Sigmund Freud said that, you know, lesbianism was a gateway to mental illness because Sigmund Freud believed that only men had moral sense. You know, and we all evolve from apes, so no human is born with moral sense, but boys acquire a sense of morality through castration complex, which is basically the fear that their fathers will emasculate, emasculate them for misbehaviour. And we're going to get into that in a while. But having nothing obvious to neuter, girls and women were essentially amoral. So they were lying and conniving to get what they want, according to Freud. And he said that girls must be guided through civilization, um, must be guided through civilized life by a father um, and a woman by a husband. And because they choose not to marry, uh, at least marry men, lesbians remain loose cannons and they're fundamentally untrustworthy and unstable. You know, this is what Freud thought. His daughter, Anna, was his closest intellectual companion and emotional uh, companion yet Freud's daughter Anna was a lesbian and Freud thought that lesbianism was always the the fault of the father and he thought it could be lesbianism was in in quotations curable by psychoanalysts but Freud cautioned his followers that psychoanalysts between um you know the, the doctor who's presumably going to be male back then and with a female, you know, someone who is, according to, you know, Freud, suffering from lesbianism was a was a very erotic relationship. So Freud couldn't, you know, I guess, cure his daughter Anna's lesbianism because if he was to sit down with her and, you know, perform this, you know, psychoanalysis treatment that, you know, it would, it would develop, you know, an erotic relationship between the two. Um, but when Anna was 23... She was enjoying a specially close friendship with another woman. So he took her into analysis anyway. So in six nights a week, over several years, he and Anna analysed and dissected her masturbation fantasies. So Freud made his daughter Anna sit down with him, you know, almost seven days a week, six days a week for a number of years. And this poor girl had to spill her guts about all her different masturbation fantasies to her father, you know, which was Freud. Um, in these fantasies, um, Anna said there was like it featured an angry father figure beating a child who had made a mistake over which she had no control. So again, you know, it kind of mirrored was this Freud, you know, treating his daughter Anna harshly because of her sexuality, you know, something she'd no control of or whatever. 
But he went on to tour anyway and talk about the psychoanalysis and analysis and, you know, the treatment, especially in regards to lesbianism. And he spoke publicly about his daughter's, um, his daughter Anna's fantasies all the time while she sat in what was called the wife's chair near the podium as he sp- spoke. But now he didn't uh, name the patient, but we knew the patient was Anna because she wanted to become an analyst. Um, and she described the same fantasies in a paper titled beating fantasies and daydreams and she also you know we have also seen letters that Anna wrote to her friends about these fantasies and about lesbianism whatever but alas Freud failed to cure his daughter's lesbianism and actually Anna came out on top of this because so Sigmund Freud's daughter Anna she actually ended up enjoying 55 or 54 years of a happy monogamous relationship with Dorothy Burlingham. And for those of you who don't know, Dorothy Burlingham was the heiress to the Tiffany fortune. So yes, while um, Anna Freud, you know, did have a bit of a shitty upbringing with her father, you know, who who constantly shot on her sexuality and, you know, tried to tell her that lesbianism was in fact a mental illness. He wasn't able to quote unquote cure Anna. And instead Anna went on to live a happy monogamous relationship for half a century with the rich, the wealthy Dorothy Burlingham, heiress of the Tiffany fortune. Freud had some interesting psychological insights into sexuality to say the least you know and this is not it might not be an easy listen it might make you cringe a little because it did make me cringe a little now Freud is someone who I had to study for years because like I said I have a degree in psychology yes I am a master mind um you know I just look at people look into their beady little eyes and it's like it is like windows to the soul you know I am practically a mind reader um ask either come mind reader um, but Freud had some very interesting and bizarre, and I don't really know how to feel of them. Basically, Freud put forward two theories in terms of, I guess, when we're kids in our fundamental ages of um, sexuality. He put forward two theories. One theory being the Ipidus complex and the other theory being the Electra complex. So let's get into the Oedipus complex. Basically here, Um, Freud looked at young boys growing up and he said that at a certain point of sexual maturity you know in growing a sexual development that somewhere along the way young boys would get a very sexual desire for their own mother and now he believed this happened to all young men so somewhere along the way all young men would get the sexual desire for their mother they would want to be with their mother sexually you know suddenly the 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 kind of nurturing mother-son relationship wasn't enough Freud said that at a certain time in sexual development all young boys would want to be sexually romantic with their mother and this is why Freud says that oftentimes we see, you know, a somewhat strained or combative relationship between fathers and their sons. Because while the sons want to pursue their mother sexually, this brings out like a primal aggression in the father. Because the father sees, that, you know, that his mate is, you know, it's potentially being compromised. He's being challenged, you know. So we see a lot of tension, Freud said, you know, start up between the father and the son around this stage of sexual development. So during this um, Oedipus complex, um, the father would then go and castrate the son 
if, if, if that makes sense. So this whole um, fear of castration is how the father, you know, kind of belittles the son and brings the son down so that the son then no longer plays a role, you know, or a threatening role in pursuing the mother. But then the son also turned, turns around and resents the father because the son also wants to have sex with the mother. The father wants to have sex. Everyone wants to have sex with them. Ah, you know, and so tensions are rising. Um, and then eventually this whole, um, I guess the tension, the chaos kind of dies down and the father and son then can become a, a, you know, a closer unit and the father and son then will go and have sex with the whoever the son is interested in if you get me so it's almost like the the son's conquest if you will in having sex with other women also becomes part of the father's joy and feels like he is also you know out being you know getting nasty with younger women and that is how they become closer but it's a lot it's, it does have a lot to do this epitaph complex of you know how boys grow up and look for partners that are very similar to their mother because obviously the father is not going to let them have sex the father is always going to stop the son from pursuing the mother sexually so what the son does when he grows up he will have to go out and find women that emulate his mother that that according to freud was basically the end goal of every male they wanted to go out and find a partner that was as close to their mother as possible and they're therefore living out this mother-son fantasy through whatever partner they have right now. So, for example, if, you know, a guy is growing up and his mother was, like, overly doting, was just, like, overbearing, like, babied this son, you know, all through his teenage years or whatever, then that son is going to go out and find a female partner that is going to baby him and take care of him or what have you. So if you're listening to this and you have a boyfriend at home and you know he he likes to be babied, likes to be taken care of, whatever, it's more to this than just like, oh, guys being lazy and like, oh, loving their mothers or what have you. If, you know, you can tell in your boyfriend, in your partner that he, he wants all that is only because he is living out a sexual desire with the mother. You know, in a similar way, if the guy had, you know, a very tense relationship with his mother and bickered and fought a lot or what have you. And if you find that, you know, your boyfriend now, your partner now seems to be bickering just for the sake of bickering and not even maybe even being like super involved in the argument or whatever. And, you know, would kind of lose interest in the fight like halfway through being like, oh, I don't even know why I'm fighting. That is, you know, your boyfriend's way of reenacting you know, the relationship that he has with his mother, you know, according to Freud, you know, that your relationship with your boyfriend now, the way he acts is how he would want to act with his mother. I know, I know it's creepy, but you know, it, it could potentially hold hold a certain weight. I think that it could. Now, Freud had a similar theory in terms of females. With females in, during the sexual development period um, of, of young adulthood, of childhood, he put forward the Electra complex. Now, the Electra complex was basically, again, like Freud wasn't like, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, making milestones, you know, for the feminist community. But the Electra complex basically uh, states that girls have penis envy that because they do not have anything. I mean, I, I, I don't know why Freud would say that if you don't have a penis, you have nothing. 
you know, just because you, you can't like see the vagina like swinging and whatever. He always said that females had the electro, electro complex and that they had nothing. So they would, you know, form very close bonds with their father because they had penis envy. So they'd form really, really close bonds with the father. Um, and again, kind of in a similar way, you know, the the mother, uh, not as aggressive as the father, but relationships then can start to diminish between young girls and their mothers because girls are forming such a close bond with their father. And then as girls grow up or whatever, the males that they seek, according to Freud, are going to be reminiscent of the relationship that you had with your father. So if your father, you know, happened to be a particularly, you know, aggressive person, you know, be it verbally, emotionally, what have you, then according to Freud, you are going to go out and you might know why, or you might subconsciously do it, but you're going to go out and find male partners. So the guys that you're fucking now, you're going to find that they're emotionally unavailable. They may be somewhat absent or they may have a real aggressive streak. And you may always be, you know, be in your head being like, okay, why? do I like aggressive guys? Like, what is it in me that, like, really clings on to these aggressive guys? Because you might know that that's not a healthy relationship and could actually be quite toxic. But you're like, why Why is it, what is it about these bad boys, these aggressive boys that really resonate with me? You know, why am I so attracted to them? And you have to look back at your relationship with your father, according to Freud. And if you had that kind of aggressive kind of relationship with your father, if your father was an aggressive man or what have you, then you were going to go out and trying to fuck aggressive guys. All the, all the while trying to recreate that relationship with your father. So basically, according to Freud, all we all wanted to do and who we're going out and trying to fuck now is basically either our mother or our father. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not a nice to think about that we're basically just going out and trying to recreate sexual relationships with our parents. It's definitely, it's certainly, you know, nothing nice to think about. But if you were to reflect right now while you're lying down on the mind popper's couch, does that resonate with you? Are you trying to recreate a relationship sexually with your father, with your mother? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You know, so it would seem, you know, that whatever relationship you're in now, whatever situation you're in now, whatever entanglement that you are in now, that your relationship is strongly determined by how you were raised. So if one of both of your parents, you know, were or still are dominant by nature, you know, throughout these crucial developmental years of your life, You've gotten used to this lifestyle and subconsciously you seek the same traits in your partner too. So your submissive nature is a given and you end up attracting dominant partners to fulfill the pattern all over again. So as you were raised in this very arrangement, you expect the same for your outside environment as well. And it's crazy because you just, you don't think, do you, that like, uh, just how much our parents fuck us up. You know, no one, no one truly understands the impact, what they have about, what, what, you know, what our parents have, what we, our impact we will have on kids, what have you. Um, and it's not nice, it's not really a nice thought to think about that, you know, your sexual jollies, your fantasies, things that rock your shit, you know, 
can be and for the most part according to Freud are heavily influenced by our relationships with our parents you know and I wanted to take that one step further and look you know how psychology impacts we'll say our our sexual fantasies our fetishes and our kinks now first let's just distinguish between a fetish and a kink you know kink is like those kind of things that kind of I guess the dictionary defines it as like bizarre things that give us sexual arousal which isn't very kink positive whereas a fetish then is more so something it's kind of all consuming so say if you had say a foot fetish then the, the, the term fetish would insinuate that you know you cannot reach say we'll say sexual climax without the whole sexual experience you know not revolving around feet or a foot whereas the kink is something that you can add in and it does give you sexual arousal but it's not all consuming whereas a fetish by its very nature is all consuming you know if you had say a latex fetish then you wouldn't be able to climax or be sexually aroused without the presence of say a latex suit what have you now what's very interesting and in terms of how we have been sex shamed as a nation So the the term kink or kinky was actually only removed from the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, you know, a guidebook for psychologists. That's the the term I was trying to find a while ago. So kink has only been removed from the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders in 2013. Okay, so before 2013, anyone who was engaging in kinky sex would have been regarded as mentally ill you know officially mentally ill and I thank god that's gone and I'm sure what a lot of us get up to could be (laughs) regarded as mental illness um but what I wanted to you know because I know a lot of people I have a lot of friends what have you that are that are very interested in being tied up and I was looking into the psychology what is the psychology of people tying up and, and wanting to be tied up I mean if you're the person who's tying somebody up then and you're into it as much as the person who is being tied up I guess if you're tying somebody up the whole the whole premise of that is it's about control it's about taking control or what have you and so if your boyfriend says tying you up you know, Freud would link that back to the boy's relationship with the father and the father being like very dominant and very in control. And we will see, you know, that this guy could be emulating, you know, acts of the father. And in the same way, someone who likes being tied up, you know, could be going back to their childhood, someone who, you know, was controlled. But a lot of people just put a positive spin on people who like being tied up in bed. It is a whole thing about control, but but a lot of psychologists say that being tied up in bed, it isn't about necessarily giving up your control, but it's about mirroring our outside lives. And by that, I mean, in our outside lives, we really have like no fucking control over anything, do we? We really have no control. So we put ourselves in a position when we're getting tied up in the bedroom of obviously sacrificing all that control you know we're tied up or we're looking like a, a fucking raw chicken you know arms tied back to the legs um and the whole thing is we're putting ourselves in a position of having no control but also having the ability to have a safe word so we can end that control like that you know we can end that control so it, being tied up is, is while it is, yes, a submissive trait, it also gives that submissive the power of control of being able to 
take back the reins if that makes sense in any sense so apparently that is where the whole sexual pleasure of this whole bondage kind of thing comes from you know during sex and the thing about kinks psychologists say is that they can or they can kind of form attachments form bonds to us at really any point of our life and while yes a lot of it does happen in our childhood development and childhood sexuality um for example psychologists would say that like if you have a particularly you know like amazing orgasm when you're sitting on a blue couch you know you're at yourself you're feeling yourself you are rocking your world while you know sitting down on this beautiful blue suede couch you know the brain can form attachments psychologists say you know so from that point forward your brain will be rewired because you had such a good fucking orgasm you know on your nana's blue couch that every time you see you know like that certain shade of blue or whatever that that is going to trigger something, some trigger some point of arousal in your brain. Like we do not understand how you know how easy our brain, the subconscious, gets rewired, and we really don't be don't know why we be doing the shit that we be doing. All meanwhile, all the time, our brain is like picking things up and compartmentalizing things, and we just think we're we're just walking along, you know, trying to jack off on you know Granny's couch. And not knowing the psychological implications that that could have for us in the future. So, basically, what we're looking at is, can we trace back our sexuality now, our sexual preferences now, the things that we're into, to certain events or relationships in our past developmental years? And I think if you go and try and do that, you will surprise yourself. Like, can you sit down now, listening to this and look at your partner and see traits of your parents you know so obviously it was Freud suggested that if you're a girl you are literally trying to recreate the relationship that you had with your father and you know going back into that comfortable role you know if your father was super dominant or super aggressive you are going to try and emulate that relationship with the partner that you're with now you have sought them out according to Freud because that is the closest match that you were able to find to your father again comes down to the electric complex and then going back to Freud's theory on the Oedipus complex and if a guy you know can look across the couch now and look at his girlfriend his partner and you know, is he looking at it? Can he trace that back? Is he recreating a relationship that he had with his mother? You know, it's all fairly nasty. Now, bizarre enough, yes, looking at our sex, uh, how our sexual fantasies, desires, relationships seeming, seemingly stream back to our parents. Another thing I want to look at is the psychology behind being a psychopath or a sociopath and maybe a little look into the psychology of what makes a serial killer a killer and I want to start off this segment of the Mind Poppers podcast by taking a quiz. So this quiz will let me know if I am a psychopath, if I am a sociopath or if I have any tendencies of either. Now do I think I'm a psychopath or a sociopath? No I do not but There's only one way to find out and that is by taking a quiz on the internet. So I guess we will see. You know, I could surprise myself. Question one. Most would describe me as a charming and nonchalant. I can turn my charm on and off like a faucet. That is definitely me. 
So not me, this describes me somewhat, or this is definitely me, are the options. First one, this is definitely me. I do what I want, when I want, the moment the impulse strikes me, regardless of what others want. I'm going to go somewhat middle ball with this and say this describes me somewhat for sure, because I can be that person, I can. If someone goes wrong, if something goes wrong or turns out badly, it's not my fault. As much as I would like to tether the blame to somebody else, I would say this describes me somewhat, you know. Might not take the full bullet, but I'll take half of it. I've gotten into legal or criminal trouble as an adult. Not just a speeding or parking ticket. Not me. I've never been caught. I am easily the best at what I do. Bar none. Nobody could ever take my place. And to somewhat, I definitely agree with this because there is one me, there is one you. Nobody can do that. Nobody can do what we do. So I would say that this is definitely, this is definitely me. I do whatever I feel like doing and I don't care what others think or even if it's illegal. I mean, sure. I mean, have I ever wanted to murder someone? At some stage, probably. But have I done it? No. So I would say somewhat. This describes me somewhat. Every person for themselves. I don't see the point in feeling sorry for other people and have no desire to help others. This is not me. Believe it or not, I'm a very empathic person. I feel like I carry the pain of the world, you know, in my little noggin 100%. It weighs down on me. That is not me. I am an empath for sure. Even though I am quite cold, but still. I've gotten into legal or criminal trouble when I was a teenager. No, I've never been caught again, so not me. I have no problem or concern in lying in order to get what I want. Mm. I mean, for sure. For sure. I mean, obviously, it depends on the gravity of the situation. But if, you know, I, I do need something... I would say that this is definitely me. I would lie. I would lie. I'm just saying if I wanted something so badly that the only option to get it was to lie, then I would probably lie. Live in the moment is what I say. The future will take care of itself and learning from your past is pointless. That is not me because I just am fundamentally lack the ability to live in the moment. I am still, you know, lying in bed thinking about every cringy thing I did every night. That is why I get about four hours sleep tops. That's not me. I never feel remorse, shame or guilt about something I've done or said. I do. I do. To some degree. I don't know how much it affects me. So I would say I'll fall somewhat in the middle. This describes me somewhat. And the final question. I don't see the point in taking on responsibilities of any kind. They just weigh you down. I would love to be someone who does not take on responsibilities. But I will. I'm the kind of person who would bite more than I can chew. And then just fuck it up. And then fuck it up like to a point where you didn't even think someone could fuck it up that much. Um, but I don't want to take responsibilities for sure. So I, I would say this somewhat describes me. Okay, I'm waiting for the results. You scored a total of 11. So you have no psychopathy. You answered this quiz consistent with people who would not generally be considered a psychopath by research methods currently used to quickly screen for psychopathy in the population. Well, <laughs> well, that is good to know. And I, 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 I knew it. I knew that I wasn't capable. Now, congratulations for not being a psychopath today. Oh, okay. So the results were, if you scored on this test, 0 to 12, little to no psychopathic tendencies, 13 to 17, moderate to minor psychopathic tendencies, and 18 and up, strong psychopathic 
tendencies. But something that I have been interested in, because I, I think myself, in my use of language and desire and what have you, I do feel like at times I can be maybe, and maybe you might see this in yourself without acknowledging it, because you might still be a great person. But I still feel like that at times I can be quite a manipulative person. So I want to look at the psychology of what makes a person manipulative. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So while the results came back and said that I'm not a psychopath or don't, you know, display many psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies you know for some part I, I, I will I do have a certain level of self-awareness where I think that at times I could be quite a manipulative person and just because you know you're a manipulative person doesn't necessarily mean that you're like this evil genius <laughs> which I'm not I swear um but you know you, you you've seen it probably in your own lives as well you know the way it's like when, when when someone in the friend group, you know, like two of them are off talking or whatever. And you know that there's some tea, there is some gossip that has not spilt onto your plate yet. And old tight lip Sally is keeping it under, under, you know, under lock and key. She ain't going to tell you. So, you know, in the time, like if I'm messaging my friend Kate or whatever, and I know that she knows something that I don't know, something real juicy that I want to sink my teeth into, but I know that she's not going to say anything. And of course, you do want to be like desperate, like, oh, go on, tell me. Tell me what Mary was doing. Tell me what Mary did. What did Mary say? You know, you can't go down that route. And, and a manipulator will know that because you, you can't come straight on with this person. A manipulator knows that you have to put this question, your thirst for the gossip, into a Trojan horse, if you will. So instead of me texting Kay being like, tell me what Mary said, go on, tell me what Mary said. I'll text my friend Kay and I'll be like, oh, shit, that's awful about Mary, isn't it? That's terrible. Now that's like, that's real down and out lousy what happened to Mary. You go under the guys that you already know. And now Kate, you know, feels like she has a confidant. She can finally, you know, have someone to talk with this about. So her first instinct is going to be, I know I can't believe she fucked Sarah's boyfriend, you know. And bam, you know the tea. The tea has been brought to you. You know, with minimal effort, all about knowing how to construct your language. And I mean, I guess it's not technically a lie. You know, I didn't say I knew. I said it was terrible. I made a statement, but I chummed the waters and Kate bit, you know, and I've done this tactic quite a time. Let me tell you, quite a time. And it nearly always works. It nearly always works. And as well, I mean, look, 
I don't think manipulators are bad people, you know? Some people, it just happens, you know? And I mean, I'm sure a lot of you who are listening will be able to resonate with the fact that sometimes, you know, a group of friends needs a puppet master, you know? And it's not like you're controlling every move they make, but sometimes to either, you know, E or to like make certain fights in the dynamic of the group, you know, fade away and bring about a peace or alternatively, you know, stir up some shit, you know, never in my life met a pot that I did not want to stir and then lick the spoon afterwards, you know, so alternatively, yes, those powers of manipulation can be used to bring out, you know, a certain bout of chaos and you know I guess if if you find yourself am I a manipulative person am I a manipulative person do you ever find yourself like talking to someone and you will bring about an argument you know you're not angry with this person at all but you will bring about an argument because you are craving a certain emotion like today I feel like I want to be you know showered with affection you are not giving me enough affection you are not giving me enough care it doesn't fill me you know, and you're just, the way you are normally, it doesn't fill me to the point where I feel satisfied. So I will, you know, by some bit of manipulation, bring about an argument with the two of us and, you know, maybe you will feel bad and you will shower me with your, oh, I'm so sorry, I love you. And that kind of a thing, which fulfills us, you know, so if you, you, again, a lot of this is done subconsciously. Like if you find yourself starting fights with your partner for no reason or, you know, making mountains out of molehills, is it the subconscious manipulator in the back of your mind being like, right, you're not giving me the emotional energy I need off you right now. So I'm going to make you give it to me. If I have to start the fire, I will. And yes, that is a manipulator. But where do manipulators come from you know how does one become a manipulator well many psychologists would put forward three theories some put it down to family history was the individual in question influenced by certain manipulative family members in his or her life in the family dynamic was there a struggle for economic or social survival and i think that's interesting because you know are some of your families like dynasty you know because what one thing that i love nothing more in this world there is a good old fucking power struggle you know like maybe if you were like me and you might have that one friend or that one frenemy where your relationship is based around this power struggle, a tit for tat, every encounter, every conversation, who comes out on top, you know? And that can be a very sexy feeling, okay? Having that power struggle, you know? You walk into a room differently when that frenemy's there, you know? You walk in and you control the room and you make eye contact with everybody and maybe not make eye contact with them, you know? You let them know subconsciously, that we we are involved in a feud. Sometimes a feud can be very emotionally fulfilling, I feel. You know, a good feud. And when you find a friend, that yes, well, yes, and it is a true friendship, but when that friendship can also be based around a feud and a constant power struggle, that is hot. You know, very few things compare to a nice, healthy feud. Anyway, I digress. Some psychologists will say that it comes down to people kind of feeling, I guess, excluded, you know? So people will have felt that they need to 
people feel like that they were kind of like at least maybe the victim of like a social weakness or they were disadvantageous in their formative years. You know, did this person like experience exclusion in any way, like be it socially, economically, culturally, professionally or, or what have you. And then this person will go on to develop these manipulative ways to compete You know, so say, for example, you grow up in a household where you have, say, your four brothers or you're a girl and you have three sisters or what have you, mix and match, I don't give a fuck. But if you're like, say, the runt to the litter and you have four real big beefed out guys who, you know, are twice your body weight and possess twice the physical strength as you. So while you can't compete with these people on that physical level, what you can do what you gon' do is develop this manipulation technique, which basically comes down to what psychologists say is nothing more than a form of survival, a tool of survival, so that you can compete with people who have certain advantages over you. Again, whether that is, you know, socially, economically. So, you know, if you were, you know, like a young girl in, say, a house full of men, you know, a house, you know, a patriarchal house, Can you develop those tools manipulatively to compete with these men on a certain level and not only compete, but dominate? Absolutely, you can. So, you know, manipulators aren't bad people. Manipulators are just people who have used the tools at their disposal to compete in a very competitive environment, as is life. Third theory for someone being a manipulative person then comes down to Were there any social, professional or societal norms which encouraged cunning, scheming, bargaining, haggling, exploiting, human weakness, um, you know, and ruthlessness to to get what you want? And again, that comes down to say a lot of people's professions, you know, whether you're like a car dealer and you have to haggle to bring price down or even if, if it comes to something like selling houses, you know, and you want to do it at that highest price and you're telling someone, oh, this is the best house for you. Like, and you might play on their emotions. Like, can you imagine your kids running around here, like bringing in people's children and all that all to, I guess, create this false emotional connection with someone to really bring them about to your way of thinking or basically you know manipulating that person to bring about a goal that you desire and I guess that is something that we all do you know and as I mean look listen, you could be listening to this and you could be you know one of the very few good people out there I think a lot of us are manipulators and we don't even know that we are so going back to something we mentioned earlier was you know that this idea of psychopaths sociopaths and serial killers What is the psychology behind that? Now, while there is many, many, many papers on what makes up a serial killer, one of the most interesting theories put forward was by that of psychologist or psychoanalyst um, John McDonald. So he put forward the McDonald triad or the triad of sociopathy or the homicidal triad that it's become known as. Now, a lot of this is disputed, but... A lot of people say that it still is an indicator of someone who's going to have violent tendencies later on in life. So what makes up this triad, this triangle of a potential serial killer? Well, the three things are, one, bedwetting, he suggested past the age of 12, was an indicator that someone could potentially grow up to be a serial killer. The other one was arson. Someone who, a a child 
or young adult who is a, an arsonist starting fires had this obsession with fire would go on and you know it was an indication that they could potentially go on and be an offender later in life the third and final segment of the triad was animal abuse children or young adults who you know found i guess some sort of enjoyment or participated in the hurting of animals of you know of um what is the word i am looking for for intentionally inflicting pain on animals that this again was an indicator of someone who could potentially grow up to be a serial killer and the real red flags were raised when a person exhibited two you know at least two of these um things from the mcdonald triad they would go on to become a potential or sorry potential serial killer so the whole arson thing basically is it was theorised that, you know, young people participating in arson and starting fires, it was kind of a less severe or first shot at releasing their aggression, if that makes sense. Similarly, the way the cruelty to animals, the, the cruelty to animals part of McDonald's triad was, it was almost like, for some offenders, it was, killing animals was a rehearsal for killing human victims. So cruelty to animals is mainly used to vent frustration and anger you know, the same way the, the arson was, the fire setting was. And it was really these kids, right, that have extensive amounts of humiliation, you know, were also found, like, in the childhoods, you know, to be kind of the victims of, like, cruel parents or what have you. Um, you know, parents who were too strong to fight back at, so the, the children was too weak and was literally the victim of this abuse from parents. It was found that, these children would engage uh, in acts of animal cruelty and it was basically just a medium of taking out that frustration on their parents and they chose animals because you know they were viewed as weak and vulnerable um and studies have found that those who engage in childhood acts of cruelty to animals used the same methods of killing on their human victims as they did on their animal victims. And an interesting study carried out by Wright and Hensley in 2003, um, they had gone to, or they were studying inmates in a prison and they looked at a study of 45 um, male prison inmates and 56% of them um, admitted to carrying out acts of violence on animals. Uh, that was a study actually by McClellan in 2003. But it does hold to the point that, okay, we are seeing people who offend later in life and we're actually seeing signs of that when they are younger. But, you know, if you say to me, okay, if you ask me and you see these people, you know, who, who are out hurting animals, who are like out setting cats on fire or whatever, like that isn't like a big psychological insight into their mind for me. If I see a kid who's about to set a cat on fire, you best believe I know that kid is going to be 100% fucked up in the future you know like that's not like an indicator like oh I better keep an eye on this kid like that kid is obviously a, ca- a kid that's going to be is like beating the shit out of animals is gonna be you know fucked in the head you know there ain't no two ways about that like we being new but what I didn't know of was where does the whole the bed wedding come into this whole triad of, of someone becoming a serial killer and basically the technical name for it is enuresis um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it means the unintentional bedwetting during sleep, which is persistent from the age of five. And especially, you know, after the age of, um, 
of, of 12. And the whole thing about this bedwetting past the, the age of 12 or whatever kind of came down to was that like the child was being, say, humiliated, like especially if like the child is being belittled by a parent figure or other adult. And then this would cause the child's kind of child to start, you know, using fire uh, setting like arson and then moving on to cruelty to animals. Basically, it was this whole cycle. But I suppose now in more modern times, because the, I think uh, McDonald's triad, this kind of theory, this research is kind of released around in the 1960s. Now we don't really use it as like an indicator and like, yes, this person is definitely going to grow up and become a serial killer. But we use it as kind of more of a spotting red flags. And we can see that this pattern, these three things, the bed, wedding, the arson and the cruelty to animals can be a likely indicator that this person is going to go on and become some sort of offender or serial offender, you know, in the years to come. But the interesting thing is from all of this, the takeaway away from all of this, from Freud's theories up until the McDonald's theories on serial killers is the one common link between all of these psychoanalysts is that it all stems back to these fundamental years with our parents. So your parents are going to be making you, you know, like a big old freak in the bed you know, a freak in the sheets and a serial killer on the streets. It all seems to link back to our parents, you know, which thank God that I can take a day off from blaming myself and finally have two bitches to point the finger at, okay? Because you, like, I hate, like, when your parents like, oh, you have an attitude, you have an attitude. And you're like, yes, you made me the way I am. You know, you gave me this attitude, you know, I was quite, when I was in the womb, before I met the two of you negative Nellies, I was fine. I was vibing. I was a good person. You slowly, you know, according to Freud, broke me down and turned me into this, you know, this manipulating sycophant. Um, So it is interesting how all of these psychologists theorize that basically everything of what we are you know does come from our parents and even maybe doubly so because if we look at it a nature versus nurture type of way you know nature being genetics and nurture obviously being our environment growing up well they both lead back to two bitches you know and that is mom and pops so can is it fair that we can blame everything in our life going wrong on our parents I would say, I would say most definitely yes. Just an interesting side note on serial killers. A lot of you have been getting into The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills ever since Netflix bought the rights to the first two seasons. Now, if you're a fan of Beverly Hills, you will know of one of the ladies who comes in, I think maybe around season five, which is Lisa Renna. Lisa Renna's mother, actually, who's Lois Renna, actually survived um, an encounter with the serial killer. Um, Lisa Renna talked about it on the show it was back in so it was 1960 and Lois her mother had actually been working with the guy you know he'd actually been working with a guy called David Carpenter who would later on become known as the trailside killer because he used to stalk people along hiking trails in San Francisco and murder them but she actually worked with this guy who collected her from a bus stop in 1960 and of course she got into the car because that was her colleague and Lisa Renna's mother drove down with him anyway until he pulled into kind of a deserted car park and pulled out a hammer and a knife and tried to murder her. But it just so happened that a military policeman was like across the road or happened to be in the area and saw all this go down. 
So Lisa Renna's mother actually was the, the first victim. Now she didn't die, she survived, but she was the first victim of the trailside serial killer in San Francisco. And he was actually the first person, or he was the first, she, Lois, the mother, was the first person that the trailside killer actually went to jail for, for seven years. But then again, obviously he did get back out and kill all those people. But interesting fun fact, Lisa Renna's mother was the first and only survivor that we know of of the trail site serial killer in San Francisco. So as we reach the end of our session, as you lie comfortably sprawled on the Mind Poppers couch in our Mind Poppers LTD psychotherapy um, building, have you been able to recognize any traits within yourself or your relationships? Have you been able to guide these back while listening to this episode to your relationship with your parents, you know, be it our sexual desires, what we long for in a partner, um, our aggressive tendencies, our tendencies to be the victim, um, our tendencies of manipulation and even serial killers, according to psychologists, all link back to our parents' impact on our fundamental years of development. Do you know somebody who fits all criteria of McDonald's triad? Do you know a bedwetter? Do you know an arsonist? Do you know an animal cruelty person? (laughs) Because these are all red flags. And like I said, sometimes fact is stranger than fiction. The subconscious way our brain picks up things and creates certain pathways and links that we just have not been aware of. Well, now is the time to get woke and find out why you are the way you are. It's not enough just to sit there and be like, well, this is me. You know what made you? Who made you? Until next time, stay woke. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.